Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm Matt. I'm always losing things and hiding things. I can never find them. I don't know where I put them. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Serious Film People. This is our series of the 1944 films nominated for Best Picture at the 17th Academy Awards held in 1945. For this episode, we are talking about a gothic-styled psychological thriller set in 1980s London from director George Cukor and starring Ingrid Bergman. As a woman who probably wishes she had continued using candles when things get dark, we're talking about Gaslight. Woo! Had we seen this before? Josh, first to you. Have, have, what's your your experience or uh, background with Gaslight? My experience and background with Gaslight is it's a word that's gotten started to get thrown around in the last like five, ten years in popular culture. And um, I think I learned shortly after I first heard the term Gaslight that it was a reference to this movie. Um, so I was aware that the movie existed because, uh, the, the title has kind of become a word in our vernacular. It's actually in the Oxford English Dictionary now. Um, so I knew it existed because of that and I had not seen it until last night. Okay. So a very recent watch for, for Josh. Yes. TJ, what about you? What's your experience with this? Well, I'm in this film. Um, if you look really closely <laughs> at the police officer scene, um, no. Yeah, just like Stanley Tucci's in Pritzi's Honor. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> we're both lying about our careers. Let's see how far it gets me. Um, now, I, I had heard of this film when I was in college. Somebody I was in school with said it was their mom's favorite film. I don't know how it came up in conversation, but I remember just being like, oh, I've like vaguely heard of that. But I and honestly, I didn't think about it really again until you picked 1944. So very, very fresh this strikes me as a mom favorite movie kind of really? kind of situation. Yeah, okay. Okay. I'm not surprised. Uh-huh. I'll be honest. Uh, I had seen the film a couple of times before. Um, being a, a TCM kid as I was growing ah, up in yes. the 90s, early 2000s. Um, yeah, my parents showed me this film. I don't know when. Honestly, I was probably in high school the first time I actually watched it. Um, Ken's and... nanny growing up was Robert Osborne. <laughs> that's 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 right. Yeah, my parents would go away vacations and. Just leave the leave the tube on, and and Robert would guide me through my through my days. Uh, this this is an interesting uh, little movie, also because it is from MGM, and I just got to say, it's not on the surface a film you'd expect coming out of MGM. I mean, it's a movie movie studio famous for musicals and more lighter fare comedies usually, and so it is kind of a, a strange outlier for them. Um, and it's also really dark. Let's be honest. This is 1944. World War II is still going on. It's an interesting choice to make this movie at this time. And I think we'll get into that because I do want to discuss um, what it is saying at the time and, and maybe its impact on the viewing audience. But before we we dive in, um, can I? I'm just going to go over a quick synopsis. Um, mm-hmm. Also, it'll, yeah. it'll serve as a... Please. I guess a, a guide for us in our, our discussion, but the film uh, opens on a crowd of people outside a London townhouse in what is likely a posh Belgravia area of London near Buckingham Palace. In fact, there's a reference to the palace by uh, one of the characters. We learn that a, a famous operatic singer named Alice Alquist has been murdered. She leaves behind a teenage niece named Paula, who is sent off to Italy to practice operatic singing with her aunt's uh, uh, trainer. Uh, years later, she meets and falls in love with a composer and pianist named Gregory Anton. They get married. Her accompanist, right? Yeah, exactly. Her, he's her, as she sings? Yeah. Yeah, he's her pianist at the time. Um, we'll get into that, but it, it appears that they just met recently when she falls yeah, in love, like yeah. really quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, it's a whirlwind romance per Wikipedia. Per exactly, the plot Wikipedia. That's exactly yeah. right. He convinces her, though, that uh, to move back to her aunt's London townhouse, which she inherited, she still owns, but right. she's never been back um, since the murder. Um, In both, Thornton Square. Is it that right? Thornton Square? Yeah, Thornton Square. That's the, that's Square. the which I, you know what? I didn't look this up. I don't know if Thornton Square is a real place, but it is very reminiscent of real squares all over this, this particular area of London, yeah. just to the west of uh, Buckingham Palace. Both Charles Boyer, who plays Gregory Anton, and the film, and particularly with help from the score, almost immediately signal that he's Gregory's not to be trusted. Um, so once we get back oh, to yeah. London, he keeps Paula confined to the house, methodically convinces her that she's going insane. All the while, Gregory's conducting secret nightly searches of her late aunt's belongings up in the attic, immediately above Paula's bedroom suite. Uh, believing Gregory to be out working in his, on his music each night, Paula becomes increasingly unnerved by the sounds of footsteps coming from upstairs and the gaslight dimming in her bedroom, a side effect of Gregory's using up some of the gas nearby during his search of the attic. We eventually receive confirmation that Gregory's not only not who he says he claims, not who he claims to be, but is in fact looking for a valuable set of jewels he is looking for, uh, he was looking for all those years ago on the night he murdered Aunt Alice. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, as if you couldn't see it coming earlier. And of course, <laughs> as Josh alluded to earlier, this is the film that gives us the term gaslighting. Um, so, oh, a little more background on the film. Uh, I honestly, parts, things I didn't know, even having seen this movie a couple of times previously, it is based on a play, a British play from 1938 called Gaslight, um, two separate words. Um, it's a little, it's, it's not much different, but a tad different from the play in the sense that apparently the husband murders just the upstairs neighbor. Um, hmm. that's the, that's my understanding of the plot in that film. It's not that, uh, he, he, there is an actual husband and wife and he is a jewel thief and he just murders the upstairs neighbor. And so she's hearing the noises of her husband breaking in upstairs. Um, hmm. interestingly, that play was first adapted into a British film called yeah. Gaslight in 1940. Yeah. Uh, meaning this is actually a remake. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And what's funny is uh, on Amazon, where I watched this movie on Amazon Prime, um, the the still, in, like the, the banner image when you go to the movie's page was clearly from the 1940 version because uh, our guy who played Lermontov in the Red Shoes, whatever that actor's yes. name is. That's right. He's the... He's the husband in the 1940 version, and so like I'm his his big face is plastered across my TV screen. I'm like, oh, Lermontov is in this, and yes. then he never showed up. That's I'm like, right. oh, I guess he's not in this. Yeah, Anton Volbrook, that's right, plays the husband in the 40 version. Another interesting side note to that: the 40 version was entitled Gaslight, except in the U.S. release, it was entitled Angel Street. Angel Street was then brought to the U.S. as the the it was it, the play was brought to the U.S. and instead of calling it Gaslight, as the original play was called, they decided to name it after the movie adaptation, or that um, the 1940 version, and so they called the play Angel Street in New York when it played on Broadway. Um, so we're several years removed now. We've had a play. We've had two different titles to the, the 40 version, and then we get this version from George Cukor and MGM, and if you looked into it, the film, this film, when released in the UK, not to confuse it from the 1940 film, it's actually titled The Murder in Thornton Square in the UK. So the 1944 film is known as The Murder in Thornton Square in, uh, in England. And uh, the 1940 version filmed in Britain 
is known here in the U.S. as Angel Street. It's very strange, but essentially it's there are very two, convoluted. Yes, there are two versions of this exact storyline uh, adapted from a play that was just introduced to audiences in 1938. So there's a lot going on with this storyline yes. in a very short period of time. Circling back, Thornton Square is a place in London, in the northwest area of London, near Regent's Park. Just FYI. Oh, okay. So that's a real you place. should have, yes. too bad this was after you could have gone when you traversed. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as we're recording this, I was just in England. I was just in London like a week and a half ago. And uh, it was actually pretty thrilling seeing them go to the Tower of London in this movie because I was staying at a hotel steps from the Tower of London. I actually toured the Tower of London like, uh, like Paula and Gregory do in this movie. And then every morning you, you, you could have gone out and said good morning to the tulips and the crocuses. That's right. <laughs> and to my nosy neighbor who loves digestive biscuits and is just really into <laughs> true crime fiction, I guess. Or like, not even fiction, murders, actual murders. We'll get to her later. I'm a huge fan of her. Huge are are of you her. a huge fan? I, we are absolutely going to get to her. Miss Thwaites. Are you, yeah, are you a huge fan of Miss Thwaites or are you a huge fan of Dame May Whitty? Or both? Uh, I think more the character, just because I don't okay. have a whole lot of background with Dame May. But, I mean, a, a perfect matching of part and player. Are they really that separable? <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Um, she gets the last line in the movie. Yes, she does. She does. Oh! Yeah, she does. <laughs> well! <laughs> well! She says, well! Oh, yeah. Three separate times. Yes. Three separate times, Miss Thwaites goes, well! And I laughed. All three times. She was she was wonderful. Particularly yeah. the first one. Yes. You mean the train station. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Paul she's talking to Paula on the train, just making chit chat about murder. Dude, talk to Miss Thwaites for for two minutes and within ninety seconds she'll be talking about this murder that happened <laughs> yeah. across the street from her house. <laughs> and uh so she's talking about the murder with Paula. Paula goes off the train and Gregory surprised her there and she starts like making out with Gregory on the train platform <laughs> and as the train pulls away. Miss the wow. Waits, nosy lady, watch them kiss. Well, <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a little bit comforting, right, to see like a familiar type character. Like this is a very modern reaction. Nosy, mer- nosy pod. Like she could easily be. A oh yeah, this, this lady listens to all the podcasts. Like <laughs> she's got serial on repeat. Uh, I, I, to jump ahead to Josh's Populous Corner, one letterbox review that I liked. It's a four-star review that just says, I'm the nosy neighbor who loves murder mysteries, digestive biscuits, and feeding the pigeons. So, <laughs> clearly very relatable to uh, to, to people today. <laughs> we, we, I, I do want to get back, because we'll talk We'll talk obviously about all the characters soon. Um, I do, uh, I am curious, uh, either of your, your relationships with George Cukor as a director, um, this is the first time we're running into him. He'll pop up again in future series. Um, but he's an interesting figure in the sense that he's a very skilled, popular studio um, filmmaker of the era. Um, he was close friends with a lot of filmmakers, a lot of actors. Um, Catherine Hepburn was one of his closest friends. And in fact, he directed her in some of her earliest movies. Um, he's also known for having directed more actors to Oscar nominations and wins than any other director. Um, really? Even, even wow. up to this point in time, uh, he had a he had a pretty good track record of getting great performances out of, of skilled actors. Um, he was also the most prominent and powerful gay man in Hollywood. Um, and while he didn't flaunt it, it was an open secret. So it does give him a bit of a historical um, first in Hollywood and movies in the sense that uh, he apparently was uh, openly gay, at least within the industry. Uh, but still very powerful, influential, and got things done um, and frequently used by studios. 
unless they didn't make money because at the end of the day money is what governs that industry I didn't know much about George Cukor uh, prior to five minutes ago when I looked him up as you were talking. You were – the episode had already begun and I was just looking him up while you were talking. Um, looks like – I don't think I've seen his other stuff, but he's definitely made a lot of uh, very notable movies. Looks like he looks like he worked with uh, David O. Selznick a lot, who was yes. you know, maybe the most important producer in the early years of Hollywood. Um, but he – directed the Philadelphia story. He directed um, the 1954 version of A Star is Born. He directed uh, My Fair Lady. I'm sorry. Yeah, My Fair Lady. Yeah, won, a, Fair Lady. won an Oscar yeah. for that. Yep. And um, apparently he was replaced as one of the directors for Gone with the Wind. That's, he That's was crazy. He was yeah. the first director because Gone with the Wind is David O. Selznick. And, That's right. Yep. Uh, yeah, he was the first of three directors that uh, worked on Gone with the Wind. And for all three of them, um, they all some of Cukor's stuff, I have to look it up. I don't remember which scenes. Some of the scenes he had already started filming do appear in the final film. Um, but yeah, he's one of three that worked on that movie. Yeah. So he, he's no slouch, though. He's, he's, got a, he's got a filmography here. Yeah. He also did work on The Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. As, as a director. That was another one where it was like credited to one person. And then it's like, and these are three other people also kind of directed it. Yes. Um and this film is, he's not working with Osel, David Oselznik here. Um, so Oselznik will pop up in a couple of weeks. He produced another film that was nominated for Best Picture. They apparently had a falling out um, a few years before this, and part of it has to do with Oselznik wanting to adapt um, or, or produce a version of A Star is Born, and at the time, Cukor didn't want to do it. So it's funny, Josh, you mentioned he made the 54 A Star is Born. His relationship with Oselznik kind of went south, because of his early refusal to make a version um, prior to this. Um, but in this case, he's working with uh, producer Arthur Hornblow Jr. And I only bring him up because last week we were just talking about Double Indemnity. He's the producer that that uh, first gave Billy Wilder an opportunity to make a film in America. Um, his 1942 film, The Major and the Minor, from Billy Wilder, that is thanks to Arthur Hornblow Jr. So a bit of a his, his last name is His last name is Hornblow? Yes. That's a cool last name. <laughs> What's the major and the minor about? Uh, I'm actually not that familiar with that, that movie, like, to be honest. Probably piano keys. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was a, a soldier and an underage person. I was like... <laughs> no, I, it's probably a soldier and somebody who works in mines. I was going to say it is a soldier. That's probably that's it, probably it, yeah. It is a, it is a, it is a war era movie, but it's, it's a comedy. The major and the mine with an E-er. And Ingrid Bergman. Can we talk about Ingrid Bergman? Or are you still on Kukor? No, no, no. Let's let's go on. She is obviously the star of the film. She's carrying this quite a bit of this movie. Ken um, was cuckoo for Kukor. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ingrid Bergman won her Oscar for this. That's cool. She won. A, she well, it's her first of uh, three Oscars. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, cool. she wins again for Anastasia, and uh, so she got two Best Actress wins. Right, this and Anastasia, and then she wins Supporting Actress. For Murder on the Orient Express in nineteen for 1974's um, Sidney Lumet-directed film. Bit of a gap between all three of those. Um, this one being 44, I think. Is Anastasia 59, maybe? Uh, it is. Yeah, it's late 50s. Um, I don't remember exactly I, which year that is. I looked that up, and it's directed by our friend uh, Anatoly Litvak of the Snake Pit oh. fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was between those two wins that she had to kind of go into exile into Italy with her lover and baby daddy, Roberto Rossellini, um, because they had an affair and birthed, among others, 
Isabella Rossellini. Yes. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, of she, David Lynch fame and being married to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Ingrid Bergman, at one time mother-in-law of Martin Scorsese. That's right. Um, there, it's funny. I don't want to get too deep down that rabbit hole because we talked about Marty plenty during the Red Shoes and we'll talk about him again. I do often wonder, not, and this is no offense to Isabella Rossellini, who is a fascinating and, and beautiful, interesting woman, but part of me wonders, did Martin Scorsese really get into that relationship because his in-laws were going to be Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman being a film buff? I'm sure. Th- I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was true love. I don't know what... I don't know what uh what Ames young Martin Scorsese had in his romantic pursuits and what his end goal was, but um, um I'm not sure I I'm not sure I actually knew that Ingrid Bergman was in this hmm. like a, until until we started talking about the 1944 movies and I like, kind of just like took a peek at who won Oscars where and said oh Ingrid Bergman best actress okay um but uh it's funny to me that this is her Oscar win because this is to me the performance that's between like. Two of the great movies of the 40s being Casablanca in 1942 and Notorious from Alfred Hitchcock in yeah. 1946. And this is just like the one in between 1944 and like. Well, she's got she's got a few here because this is she's on kind of a, a hot streak of the previous like 18 months between the release of Casablanca and the release of Gaslight. She she, of course, made Casablanca. That's a huge hit. Very popular. She received her first Oscar nomination for 1943's uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, so, and then now she's got Gaslight for which she wins and she's only been stateside for like five years at this point. Cause she's got her start in Swedish film as a young teenager back in the, the like early thirties or something. And so she hasn't been here that long, but, um, she's, she's definitely making the most of her time here because she's a bit of a high, she's a bit of an it girl and she's known at the time for being really dedicated to the shoot. Like she will show up and she is all focused on the movie at the time. Her personal life is not, she's not allowing it to distract. And from Gaslight the following year, she's in the Bells of St. Mary's, which is the sequel to Going My Way, which we'll discuss next week opposite Mm -hmm. um, uh, Bing Crosby. And then as you, to your point, Josh, the following year, she's in Notorious opposite Cary Grant directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And what a picture. Yeah. The two takeaways during this decade are definitely, I think Casablanca Notorious as far as, what people I most agree. recognize. Yes. That um, said, Citizen really Kane. Delivering. I'm talking about for, for Inger Bergman. For Bergman. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was we're, like, not, we're not on to Joseph Cotton yeah, no, no, yet. No, no, for Joseph I Cotton. thought you were just yeah. talking about the 40s in general. I'm like, oh. No, no, no. no, no. That, okay. that, that's true, though, of Casablanca and Citizen Kane is the two probably biggest takeaways from this decade. Um, but yeah, Ingrid Bergman, she, and she's delivering, frankly, here. She's really good in this movie. Yeah, she's delivering as a... She's on a run of playing vaguely European characters in American movies, and yeah, it plays. Yeah, I think she's really good in this. Um, but uh, particularly the scene where she like recounts finding her aunt dead, because like she found her aunt murdered right. uh, before the events in the movie. The movie opens with like I guess them taking her body out of the house, something like that. I don't really know, but um, yeah, she's good in this. Right. The the film opens on the scene of like the crowd in Thornton Square, like huddled around outside the the townhouse as um, the the police are finishing up with the the scene of the crime, and they're I, I assume it's Aunt Alice's attorney, but someone's escorting a teenage Paula out of the house into a carriage to head off for a train to Europe to to the continent. And I do really like this opening scene. Number one, uh, opening image. I'm really big on opening images. Do you guys remember what the opening opening image is? 
It's the newspaper. No, it's someone lighting a lamp. Someone oh, lighting oh, the gas yeah. lamp outside. And then it cuts the newspaper yeah. where it says, uh, Strangler still at large. So, like, automatically, I'm already in. Like, if you start with a Strangler still at large, then 10 seconds of opening your movie, I'm like, yeah. Um, but then, like, that, that whole opening scene is, like, very um, ethereal and, like, uh, it's kind of fuzzy because, like, Again, I think it's because the the effect of the lamplight and the gas and everything, but like it's kind of got this, this there's like a fuzzy tint to the cinematography and like kind of makes it like a like an un- otherworldly dreamlike kind of state. You know, I like that. And re- that that comes back later in the movie because increasingly we see that as uh, Gregory is increasingly convincing Paula that she's going insane, we get more of those fuzzy shots, um, unfocused shots of Paula, particularly on. Uh, close-ups or any time the camera closes in on her um, it kind of goes the shot the, the focus goes in and out um, so it definitely comes back later and she kind of spends most of the film in a fog it's interesting because even when she's in Italy once she meets Gregory and they they go to they go to Lake Como or she goes she gets away to Lake Como and he suddenly surprises her by being at the station when she arrives which by the way at the time how does he do that she leaves him, goes to the train station, gets on a train. How did he beat her to Lake Como? I don't understand that. But anyway, he's there. And there's there's fog and mist at the hotel of Lake Como, which for anybody who's familiar with Italy, that's not usually, I don't think that's something that you usually think about or picture. It's not a common appear, um, a common thing necessarily at the lake or what people think of when they think of northern Italy. But yet, she's shrouded in this fog pretty much from the first time she's interacting and spending time with Gregory all through the rest of the film because of course london in the 1880s is notorious for being dark and kind of misty foggy and um smoky yeah if i could say something about what josh mentioned with the first image of the movie and then the way that i was trying to figure out okay why are you calling this gaslight if that phrase didn't exist before now and how does that function as a symbol throughout the movie and i i have things to say in like parts here but part one i'm going to borrow from it's time for me to quote somebody uh dirk setton he wrote an essay called i think i am mad derrida gaslight and the irony of the cogito um it was published in oxford literary review and i just if i can can i read the first paragraph hegel once compared the self-relating structure of the consciousness with the light which manifests itself in something else too for him the idea of light consists in the fact that it appears primarily in and through the process in which it lets something else appear so as it as it itself turns on, it illuminates everything else. It creates the reality of other things being there. Hence, the self relation that Hegel calls the eye, which forms one pole of the in- intentional relationship to an object and encompasses the whole relationship at the same time, reveals itself likewise primarily in its capacity to reveal something other than itself. Skipping a little bit, um, the self conscious structure of experience and cognition would not only resemble the natural light of the sun, but also the artificial flickering of a gaslight, as if illuminating function of self consciousness intentionally, necessarily carries with it the possibility of gaslighting or maddening effect on the sense of reality that the former constitutes. Uh, here's what I take this to mean that this being the symbol that um, kind of organizes the entire film is that it's a form of light that not only is kind of Victorian and also uh, a bit of an antique in this kind of modernizing world, but what it's there is somebody has to be manipulating it, unlike the sun, and as it comes into being, it also illuminates everything around, so it is sort of like a self-consciousness that 
once you come into a self-realization, then you come into a realization of your relationship between self and world, which then forms your kind of way of knowing. And that flickering that gaslights do, as opposed to say light bulbs, um, show that it's kind of always oscillating between the danger of darkness or full illumination, but never either of those knowing things. Knowing and not knowing. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Sorry for the monologue. That's cool. No, and, no, no, that's cool. Uh, well, it, it applies directly to the film because, of course, not only is the gaslight flickering throughout this film, just as um, Paula's kind of hold or, or, or control of her mind um, as she's increasingly convinced that she's going nuts, but she's actually seeing it dim. Like we repeatedly, every night, um, Gregory is causing the gaslight in her bedroom to dim. Um, it's not clear that he necessarily knows. And he, he's and he doing tells that. her it's her imagination. He right. tells her that it's not actually dimming. Yeah. Right. Um, to the to the point that it, I feel like it's not that he's intentionally doing that. He realizes after the fact that oh, this is that's him doing it because he's actually just using gaslight in the attic to help him search. So it's just a byproduct of him wandering around, just like the footsteps. It's having the effect that he wants to have on her, but the, the, the drive is for him, the criminal aspect. He's just looking for something. Right. I do like, though, that every, because to TJ's point, because it's called gaslight, you know, anytime a reference to gas or lights happens, I'm like paying closer attention. And um, I, I already said that I like the opening scene, which again opens with lighting of the gas lamps, and then like it's got a creepy, uh, atmosphere to that whole opening scene. I also like the scene where they first come to uh, the aunt's house when they, you know, move to London and, you know, move in basically. And like, it's again, it's a very creepy and like loaded moment for Paula, for Inga Bergman, because she's coming back to a house that she lived in as a child and like lived in with her aunt and discovered her aunt's dead body in. So it's, it's a very, you know, uh, fraught moment for her. And like, I think that filmmaking kind of plays that up, but also, like as soon as they enter the house uh i I think it's ingrid bergman asks uh would you light the gas please of of her husband and and i'm like yes he will light the gas uh can we talk about uh her husband charles Charles, boyer yeah charles boyer play gregory boyer yeah he's he's uh he's incredibly effective i think in this role he's really good yeah (laughs) Also vaguely European, I guess more Italian than vaguely European. I, I thought, and I guess it's consistent with it being Victorian, but I thought he bothered me a little bit because she's doing a very effective, like kind of psychological realism thing. And he feels almost like a Count Dracula knockoff. Um, like I thought he was a bit, Interesting, yeah. he was a bit cartoonish, but the movie is Victorian. Well, so I'm arguing with myself now. That was, that was one thing I noted was that the movie doesn't really hide that he's a villain. Right. You know, it, this isn't like, I feel like if they were to make this movie today, and they have made this movie today, or at least a version of it, um, they, they're making this movie all the time, honestly. Um, but the modern version of this movie is, we as the audience really aren't sure if she's going crazy or not. But like this movie is pretty clear from the get-go that she's not going crazy and that she's being manipulated by her husband. And like, they don't hide that. Like the big reveal is not that he's behind this all. The big reveal is like, why he's doing this but um i think like minute 20 the audience is pretty clued into the fact that he's not to be trusted well there's this is something it's it's important this is where the score becomes very important because in a film like this um the score clues you in or helps to clue us in 
the scene immediately outside her um, singing, her training room when she's with her trainer in Italy, and she runs in. She she embraces Gregory outside because he's already left, and he's she's told her trainer that he's she's going to stop training. Immediately, once they're embracing and they're together and they're talking about it, and he's asking her to marry him or run away with him, and she's like, "Well, I need some time." The music is not kind of this fluttery romance music, which is normally you would expect in a scene where these two lovers are theoretically coming together. Um, there's an ominous undertone to the score in that scene, immediately cluing you in on the fact that there's something off about this guy, and also then the way the camera, Cucor focuses the camera on him after she's she's left, and he's just kind of got this look on his face that is... I don't want to say non-plus, but it's not like, oh, it's not like that of a lover who's watching the woman he loves run off. He's looking at her like a target. Like, like yeah. she's, she's an end goal somehow. I, I think it's the scene where she discovers that the pin is missing and she dumps out her purse on the stairs. Like, I think the camera's like focused on the stuff that she's dumped out of her purse. And then it kind of like pans up to him watching her. Yeah. And like it's it's such a dastardly like pan and like a dastardly reaction shot from him and like exactly what you just said like nothing about that uh is loving or concerned it's all like mustache twirling like he's like <laughs> he's like i'm i'm doing a thing you can't see where i'm like uh mr birdsing you are you are drumming yeah, your Burzing. fingers yeah. together i'm yes. drumming my fingers together yeah that that's exactly what he's that's the subtext of uh that reaction shot is he's watching her look for the brooch that he gave her and this it's interesting it's the first it's the first of um two films where charles boy basically plays a similar character he's not quite as villainous in um the earrings of madame de but he's also playing a husband in that film that clearly doesn't really love his wife and is trying to distort things um, to his favor, trying to control his wife. So um, those are the first two films that jump out in my mind when I think of Charles Boyer, to be honest with you. And so it's interesting because now I always associate him with this kind of role. TJ, you mentioned um, he's almost playing, it's almost Count Dracula-like. It's interesting because the film is obviously gothic set. It's, it's Victorian England, which is about the same time Bram Stoker's writing Dracula right and setting his, his story. Um, a little side note, one of the screenwriters on for Gaslight, um, uh, let me double check, it's, uh, yeah, John Balderston, is most famous for having adapted Bram Stoker's Dracula into an American play that was then used as the basis for the 31 film starring Bela Lugosi. So it's interesting that you picked up on that because one of the screenwriters for this film is literally responsible for the Universal movie starring Bela Lugosi that we got, what, a little bit... 12, 13 years before this. So Boyer is nominated for Best Actor for this. He does not win, but this is one of, what, four nominations he had in his life? Is that right? Uh, I think that's right. Um, I, I'll be check. honest. My, my, uh, my knowledge and experience with Charles Boyer is not as deep, other than the fact that he was um, surprisingly shorter, apparently, in person than, than many people thought he would be, to the point that he would surprise co-stars when he actually appeared in person on set. Um, and they have to. They they then have to using you know camera angles, depending on and the lifts, film. Yeah. yeah, they have exactly lifts, right platforms. They have to kind of in order to um, provide the impression that he's of power or in control. Uh, they have the same to, movie magic that made Tom Cruise look the same height as Jennifer Connelly in Top Gun Maverick because <laughs> they are not the same height in real life. Uh, Charles Boyer, just real quick, he was nominated for Best Actor in 1937 for Conquest, a movie I had not heard of, and 1938 for a movie called Algiers, a movie I 
don't think I've heard of. I've heard of the Battle of, but not just Algiers. Um, and then his third nomination was for Gaslight. And then he was nominated in 1961, so like 25 years after his first nomination, for a movie called Fanny. And he did not win any of those four nominations. He lost all four. He's Charles Boyer. He's famous at this point, I think. He's French, initially. He's from France. And I think at this time, he's playing that kind of suave European role in most of these movies. Mm-hmm. The studios yeah. are, are fitting him in where they need somebody who's got this allure. Kind of like, actually, Bela Lugosi, come to think of it. The only reason they've got Bela Lugosi playing Dracula is because there's something foreign and alluring about his accent and the way he carries himself. And yeah, Boye, for sure. he fills that role here. Um, I think I think fairly effectively, he's at times over the top, but at no time is he not menacing in this movie. There's just always something... There's always something disconcerting about his presence and his demeanor. Well, he's certainly over the top, but like, I feel like that kind of fits into the filmmaking style. Another thing I noted watching this, and I was kind of thinking about how this would play in modern times. And like, number one, in modern movies, they would not reveal that he's the secret villain until later in the movie. That's number one. And number two, and I think this is just like something about movies from the 40s I've noticed, is like, they kind of get rid of subtext. And kind of just say everything instead of like letting the moment kind of uh, convey what people are thinking. People just say whatever they're thinking. And um, in the moment that I already mentioned when Gregory watches Paula dump out her bag looking for the brooch, uh, she says, um, suddenly I'm beginning to not trust my memory at all. And, like, I feel like in a modern movie, they would just, like, let the moment play out where she can't find the brooch and is freaked out about it. And she wouldn't actually just, like, say exactly what she's thinking. But they kind of just do away with any kind of subtext or subtlety here and just, like, characters say what they're thinking. And that's why, like, possibly why Charles Boyer is very, like, somewhat over the top and cartoonish in his villainy. Because it's they're, they're kind of playing to the, to the back row. I thought a lot of our discussion about Treasure of the Sierra Madre and depictions of madness there where I took issue yeah. with yeah, yeah, yeah. Humphrey Bogart mm-hmm. being awake, being like, I'm going to get the money. Nah, see? Yeah. Nah. And she's <laughs> kind of doing a similar thing here where there's yes. like a, Very much like so. you shake and you look around and you say things like, I'm scared. All of the shadows are coming to get me or whatever. And it's, yeah. um, I don't know, perhaps quaint by these standards, but uh, when, when he tells her that they're going out to the theater, she goes, we are, you didn't tell me. Or have I forgotten? Like, again, she's just like saying every thought that comes into her head yeah. and not like, you know, it's all in dialogue. It's all there. Classic Hollywood melodrama. Yeah, Plenty but also to, Ken, to Ken's other point that like he, uh, Boye does have like a pretty alluring presence. Um, I was pretty taken by him in this, actually. And uh, as I was watching this, I looked him up because I hadn't, I hadn't heard of him and I didn't really recognize him. Um, I wanted to see what else he'd done, if anything, that I knew. Um, and the, the, the one thing that jumped out at me on his Wikipedia page is that he was in an episode of I Love Lucy playing himself. <laughs> yes. So... Uh, apparently in a, in a like a season five episode so a later episode of lucy in 56 so like 12 years after this um he apparently was an alluring enough presence in hollywood and like people liked him that uh the the plot of the lucy episode is that lucy and ricky are i guess in italy or something and like they meet him and like lucy's a big fan of his and like um ricky has to like tell him to say that he's not Shaw's boy, that he's someone else so that Lucy doesn't like embarrass herself in front of him. And then, you know, hilarity ensues. This is, this is that period of time I guess I love Lucy. There's a, at some point they have their, their Hollywood year or years where they spend a lot of time. Cause I think, I think Ricky's making a movie or something. 
And there's like a series of episodes that are kind of built around her Lucy's encounters with celebrities. Like I remember there's a John Wayne episode. So this is one of those where in order to not embarrass either the celebrity or Ricky, they have to like come up with some cockamamie plan to distract Lucy. Or Every Billy. episode of Lucy is a cockamamie yes, plan. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. It's just this time but, but just, celebrities playing themselves. But, but that definitely kind of indicates how big of a deal he was. Cause Lu- I love Lucy was an enormous, enormous, oh, yeah. enormous hit. Like kind of, you can't really talk about it in modern terms because there's nothing on TV now, or even in the last 20 years, that was as big a hit as I love Lucy. But to have a guy playing himself like on a show that big and doing a guest spot on a show that big, I think uh, speaks to his fame at the time. I don't believe this is true anymore, but um, I seem to recall that somewhere around the turn of the century, so the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a it was a bit of a joke, but it was actually still true that at any given moment, I Love Lucy was playing on a television network somewhere in the world. <laughs> yeah. Decades and decades yeah, I, I and decades, buy it. decades yeah, yeah, yeah. later. Yeah. So it, it, there is no, you're right, there's no way to compare it to any modern TV shows. It was literally the TV show, because it was early, early on in the advent of television, and it was a hit. So, um, yeah, to your point, Charles Boyer would have been like, a, it, that would have been like an allure for that week's episode. Like, we've got Charles Boyer yeah. on the episode. So he God, was quite know. quite popular and quite, um, he's quite likable among audiences, even though I think he he is kind of known for playing, again, there's kind of something sensual or alluring about his characters because of the fact that he's French and the French are automatically assumed in American movies at the time to be, you know, more interesting. Suave. Yeah, exactly. Suave. They're, they're all Cary Grants. And to that credit though, he's all, he's not usually necessarily playing the most likable of characters because it's covering up the, the, as you put it earlier, dastardly reality of Gregory's character. But who brings Charles Boyer to justice in this movie? That's that's our, our boy Joey Cotton. That's right. We got a Mercury player in here. Yeah. Uh, who's? It's interesting because he's 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 also like in a bit of a run of things, right? Because he's the previous three years before Gaslight, he's in Citizen Kane. Uh, he's got a big role in Citizen Kane too. Yeah, big role. He's not like he's not a, a walk on or anything. He's the, he's one of the leads in Magnificent Ambersons in nineteen forty two. And he's the one of the leads in Shadow of a Doubt in 1943. So he's got three hits successively. Like as far as three films that still hold up today, if you go back and want to watch them, and the um, Third Man, and, and well, that comes he's later. The third 1939, man? yeah, or 1949, excuse me. He'll be back in a few years, and that film definitely holds up. Um, but I've not seen the Third Man, but I hear it, like I know people who it's like it's their favorite movie of all time. So like I I really need to get to third man. It is point. is definitely one of my top top favorite films, and yeah. Cotton is fantastic in it. But he's he's having a bit of a run, um, kind of like Ingrid Bergman. This is now his fourth year and four successive years that does pretty well at the box office, and still does have some kind of an impact or an effect on modern movies. So um, he's he's doing pretty well for himself here. So this is Joseph Cotton. He plays is it Brian Cameron, who's like a police detective with he, Scotland, Scotland Yard. Yeah, he's an right? inspector with Scotland Yard. Okay, and he takes an interest in the. Well, he he had already taken an interest in the uh, murder of the opera singer Alice, who's uh, Ingrid Bergman's aunt, and then takes an interest in uh, Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer living in this house. Uh, but regardless. I don't think I recognized him, even though I've seen Citizen Kane like three or four times. Uh, he plays Jedediah. Yep. Is that the character name? Yep. Jed Lee who's West. like, mm-hmm. yeah, who's like the guy that like is initially Kane's partner in the newspaper business and then kind of becomes his 
critic, I well, guess. He's a, he's a, he's a friend critic, from yeah. school, and for the paper, he becomes the theater. He's the theater critic. Um, but he was but, there at like the inception of it, and is always trying to hold him to his principles. And when I when I learned when I realized which character that was, I instantly thought of that image of uh, Orson Welles in the foreground typing on the typewriter, yes. and Joseph Cotton in the background when Kane is rewriting the theater review to give his wife, the opera singer, a, a favorable review in the paper. Basically, him compromising his his uh, his. No, roles. he doesn't. He actually he writes it exactly the way he finishes Jedediah's ah, okay. review exactly as Jedediah started it. The problem is that's why Cotton's character goes and gets himself so drunk. Because he's a basically his his initial reaction to Mrs. Kane's performance is that it's atrocious, but it's his best wife's friend, or his best wife's wife, his best friend's wife, his best friend's wife. And, yeah. He um, was a Mormon in that; it was his best wife's friend. <laughs> <laughs> he's my best wife. Yeah, yeah. I can't so, do that to my best wife's friend. It's interesting though because he's he's filling multiple. So in that movie, he's to I think TJ just mentioned it. He's a bit of a. He serves as a bit of a conscience to to Charles Kane, whereas the year before this, he's in Shadow of a Doubt, and he's kind of more a Boyer or excuse me, a Gregory type character in that. Where throughout the whole film, there's just something off about the uncle, um, played by Joseph Cotton, obviously, and so he's flipping it back, and he's now suddenly the kind of knight, the knight in shining armor, who may we hope come to help out Paula because. He's. I, I think they suggest he was a. He was as a little boy. He was a big fan of her aunt Alice. Yeah. And yeah. Um, when he he first encounters them just in passing at the Tower of London. At the Tower of London. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he he recognizes her. I think she looks familiar because immediately she looks like Alice. Yeah, yeah. He suggests that I think I've seen a. I feel like I've just seen a ghost. Or he suggests the kids he's with. That he thinks he just saw a ghost because she looks and reminds him of Alice, which stirs up his memory of the murder and. Suddenly, he becomes a bit infatuated with Paula and trying to determine what is going on, who is she, and trying to suddenly solve an old murder that hasn't been solved. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, to again, kind of spoil Josh's populist corner upcoming, a lot of the letterbox reviews kind of like um, are really focused on the feminism of this movie. And how it's like a man trying to convince a woman she's crazy and Ingman Bergen's not crazy and like Yas Queen, she, you know, figures it out and like the dude gets his, but she doesn't really figure it out, yeah. actually. She's kind of like saved by Joseph Cotton, who figures it out for her. She kind of doesn't really do a whole lot to uh to help herself I'm glad, in this movie. I'm glad you're bringing this up because I this is a this is a topic I do want to discuss. The idea of the film. Yeah. The film depicts like this victimized female in a patriarchal society. And it's not just Paula. Throughout the film, we see women kind of being put in their place, being controlled. I mean, literally all of the female characters. Including Angela Lansbury. And we've got a we've got like she's 17 when they start shooting this movie. Angela Lansbury in her first ever film role. And for being her first movie, Angela Lansbury is starting off on the right foot, right? Because she's getting an Oscar nomination for Gaslight, playing Nancy Oliver, the housemaid. She gets a nomination the next year for The Picture of Dorian Gray. And then you've got to wait nearly two decades. She comes back, 1962 is the Manchurian Candidate. She gets an Oscar nomination for playing Mrs. Iceland, which, by the way, for my money, one of the all-time great supporting performances in, in any movie. In, did she win that? She did not win. She she never wins an Oscar, but she's got these three nominations. She doesn't get an Oscar until she gets the honorary Oscar um, when she's in her you know late eighties, early nineties. Um, 
and actually based on uh, based on when our this episode is dropping we're coming up on the one year anniversary of her death so it's interesting we're talking about gaslight from 1944 first film starring angela lansbury who was still with us and still working very very recently may she rest in peace her last film yeah, is glass onion. i was gonna say yeah i was 77 year career that's right yeah yeah she she managed to fit into her career multiple stages. So she's she's doing really well with the studio thing at this time. She gets a contract. She's working for MGM. She's in this. She's a picture during Grey. She's in the Harvey Girls. She's always playing kind of somewhat smoldering, sexualized supporting roles. Um, she until she, uh, even when she gets into a movie like the um, State Affair um, or sorry State of the Union with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, she's kind of playing more of the the alluring younger woman um but then once you get into the 60s she's not getting roles in movies anymore so she shifts moves to new york and she's suddenly the toast of broadway for a couple decades throughout the 60s and 70s and so while she's got success in the 40s and 50s in hollywood success in on broadway and on stage in the 60s and 70s and then she flips around when she's in the 19 she's in her 60s in the 1980s She's one of the number one. She got one of the number one television shows for twelve seasons of Murder She Wrote, where she gets an Emmy nomination for Best Actress in a Drama every single year of the twelve seasons that show runs, and is consistently every Sunday the one of the most watched shows on TV during the entire run of the series. So she's got success in all three mediums over her entire career and different stages. Uh, Pauline Kael said, and I love Pauline Kael said about Angela Lansbury. That she credits her for giving performances of unvarying quality in films of widely varying quality. That's probably that's that's a that's a polite way of saying she's often the best or one of the best parts of the movie she appears in. Yeah, I think you were saying you brought her up in the context of women being controlled in this story. Yes, you want to elaborate on that? Yes, yeah, so she's more? playing Nancy Oliver. She's the new housemaid because um, obviously they move back to London. They've got to hire a chef or a cook. That's Elizabeth. She's an older, an older woman, uh, clearly been in the, the the servant business for quite a while. Nancy Oliver, she is kind of a coquettish uh, kind of, you know, she's she's a man, a bit of a man hungry uh, little trollop um, is the best way to describe her. She's got a Cockney accent. She's very working class. She doesn't necessarily quote, know her place initially, the way she talks and interacts with Gregory, for example, he has to repeatedly kind of put her down. But that's the thing. Every time we see her in a scene, even when she's kind of trying to push the envelope with Gregory in particular, he's always got a way to kind of put her back in her place. And the way he treats both her and Elizabeth, the fact that he even tells Paula, uh, there's that scene where they're sitting in the, he, he, she, she allegedly wakes him up. I don't think he's actually sleeping, but she's trying to put coal in the fire. And he snaps at Paula. We'll have the servants do it. Call for the servants and forces her against each other. Yeah, forces her to ring the pull the pull the string to ring the bell. And so Nancy, played by Angela Lansbury, has to come up into the drawing room. And then he doesn't tell her to do it. He has oh my wife wanted something. It's like what an asshole. (laughs) She's just going to put the coal on the fire herself because she doesn't want to make the servants come upstairs to do something you can do yourself. And makes Paula obviously look that much worse. To yeah, Nancy. He's he's really driving a wedge between Nancy and Paula. Really driving a wedge between Paula and anybody. Right. I think that's probably what his end game is there. Right. Well, it, that plays into I think more of what I'm saying. He's obviously got a he, he believes that the servants are lesser than him yeah. and his status and even Paula's status. At the same time, he's also keeping 
our favorite, Miss Thwaites, away from the house. Granted, she's she's a nosy she's a bit of a nosy busybody. Um, she's the she's the neighborhood um, gossip monger, but she's genuinely wanting to befriend Paula. Yeah, and, she's coming around the house. Yeah, and they yeah. met on the train in Italy, and she's not letting her into the house. Like literally, she her her only interact real interaction throughout this entire film with Paula, substantively, is on the train at the beginning, and they exchange a short bit of words when Paula and Gregory first moved into the house. And that's it. The rest of the film, yeah. the only time we see Miss Thwaites is her observing from afar, from the garden across the street, and talking with Joseph Cotton. That's it. Well, she also like makes her way into the foyer of the house with Joseph Cotton, pretending to be like his aunt or something like that. Correct. But yeah, like Nancy just Nancy constantly turns her way at at the orders of uh, Gregory because again he's trying to isolate Paula from everybody else so he can execute the scheme to make her think she's crazy and eventually have her committed. Is the but, the plot he has. But I think to your point, you were you were you brought up initially, Josh, the fact that throughout this film we're seeing the victimization of our female characters. I mean, literally, Gregory has this auto, autocratic control over Paula's house because remember it's her house. She inherited it from her aunt. She's the owner. But of course, this is Victorian England. What what's is what's hers is his. What's his is probably still his, right? Because the idea right. that they're married, so it's theirs. Although there is the question in the film of whether or not they're actually married, because Brian Cameron, Joseph Cotton's character, suggests later on that he might be married and have a wife somewhere else. Um, yeah, and back in like Italy or something, right? Because his real name isn't Gregory Anton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, Sir Sergius Bauer. Sergius Sergius Bauer. Which is an interesting name. Um, so they're not really necessarily married, but the point is he's controlling. And throughout the film, you're just kind of wanting her to to kind of put her foot down. You're wanting her to kind of catch on to the fact that obviously, no, I didn't remove the picture from the wall. I know I didn't remove the picture from the wall. But he's so insistent that somebody removed the picture from the wall to the point that he's questioning all of the female people and all of the women in the house. He there's only there's that's it there's there's four people in this house one of the four must have removed the the painting and at no time is there any suggestion that it could have been him he's the one making all the accusations so it must be either Elizabeth it must be Paula or it must be Nancy and he has he has both Elizabeth and Nancy come up each one at a time and forces Elizabeth the 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 cook to even kiss the Bible to you know to, like she's He's got this. He's creating it's messed this up godlike dominance. Like here's the Bible. You kiss it, swearing that you didn't move the, the picture, which is twofold. It keeps Elizabeth in her place, and it also drives home the idea to Paula that she's losing her mind. And and throughout the film, you're just looking for a way for, particularly Paula, but any of the women really, to get their footing. Because to your point, Inspector Cameron is the one who, once he intrudes into the film as our hero, he's also somewhat subverting Paula's individuality because ultimately he's motivated by his infatuation with her and to a degree, we, or honestly, her infatu- his infatuation with Aunt Alice, which he then passes on to Paula. and then To which she's the silver medal. And ultimately we get the, the, at the end, like the idea that there might be a new budding romance between the two of them. But the point is, she has to be saved by the the guy. She has to be saved by Cameron, who's the only one who's caught on to what's going on. Um, and despite her, so despite her overcoming Gregory in the end of the film, she's still being rescued by the White Knight. 
That said, there is a great moment in the end of the film when we do get Paula. That one scene where she's taunting Gregory in the attic, the one time she gets an opportunity to kind of reclaim her, her own sanity um, and control over herself, got Gregory tied up, thanks to Cameron, up in the attic, and she gets to finally taunt him by suggesting, oh, he, he wants her to grab the knife to like untie him in the attic. And she's like, oh, is, is this a knife? Do I have a knife? And she tosses it away. Did I have a knife? I don't know. Very Macbeth. Yes, exactly. And she's she's toying with him the idea that, well, I'm crazy. How can I possibly help you? Um, until he she can she finally gets him to admit that she's not crazy. And thus That scene that scene does feel a little bit like Joseph Cotton being like, Okay, you can have your turn to mess with him. I subdued him, I forgot the whole mystery, I rescued you, I saved you, I fought him to get the gun out of his hand, but now that he's tied up, you can have your little have your little moment right. with him. It seems a little a little patronizing, I guess. It is it was definitely patronizing, although there is again, I you love seeing her pull it off and taunt Gregory. It is also the only time the the picture we get her unflinchingly issuing an order in her own home because at the end of that scene she she directs Cameron to take this man away without any hesitation because she can't seem to order even the servants that's one of the things Gregory points out she seems kind of fearful or nervous about directing Elizabeth and Nancy I think you guys were saying that like it's not I guess totally feminist because Joseph Cotton does a lot of it and I I'm not going to say you're wrong. I want to push back a little bit. I'm not though. saying it's not feminist. I'm just saying it's interesting that like she has so little agency. Yeah. And like she's she's rescued. Yeah. She doesn't figure it out herself. Yeah. But. No, I think you're right. I want to push back just a tad bit in the sense that like I think there has to be someone outside doing that to ground her because she's she's beginning to kind of fulfill the own prophecy of like you're crazy and like you're mad and therefore she's starting to like take those things on. So I don't know that she would have been able to pull herself out of it on her own, but something, I think she deserves some credit with that bit Ken was talking about with the knife because she flips <laughs> the turntables uh, on him because she's sort of gaslighting him there, but with this air of irony where when he's doing it to her, it's she doesn't know I'm getting away with it. When he, she does it to him, she's basically saying like, Yes, we both know what I'm doing right now, but I can do this because I'm finally in a position of power. And that line where she, in saying I am mad, um, that's bifurcating herself in the sense that if you're saying I, you're claiming a sort of knowledge of the situation and of reality. You have a, an epistemological claim. But then if you're going to say I am mad, what you're saying is I know that what I know is unreasonable and makes no sense. And so the, the irony in that is also a little bit um, absurd. So she's kind of participating in her own self-deception and kind of deconstructing that in that way, in a way that's actually empowering right at the end of, right at, right at the climax of that movie and how to kind of resolve that particular conflict. So I think she she's in a unique position to call him out there just because of what he's been doing throughout. So I, I worded that pretty poorly, but no, I think, I think to your point, it's correct. Cause I think I, I, like I said, I love that scene. We finally get, and you're right. It is a scene of empowerment to Josh's point, which is where I think I wanted to, to kind of, this is where I wanted to go with this conversation though. Unfortunately, in order for her to get to that moment of empowerment, she still need, needs the patriarchy to step in. The fact that these women don't really have their, that they don't really have agency 
They don't really have independence. Because um, right before that scene, probably what may be the best moment for women in the entire film is actually from Elizabeth, the cook. And it comes when Gregory's been up in the attic. Uh, we've had Cameron come into the house. He's he's seen Elizabeth, the cook. He's confronted Paula and explained to her, helped her understand what is really going on. And Gregory sneaks back down from the attic directly through the house because th- previously he's been sneaking into the attic, in and out of the attic through the roof from the uh, neighboring townhouse, which is empty. And so instead of going back the way he usually goes to leave, he's found the jewels that he's been looking for and he decides to come back through the attic door in, uh, in the house. Cameron, right before he's left, has told Elizabeth to look out for her mistress, keep an eye out for Paula. And so when she comes upstairs with a glass of milk for Paula realize, and suddenly sees Gregory, who she did not see come through the front door, um, did not return through the front door that evening, she's slightly thrown off. And at no point, unflint, she, there's no hesitation whatsoever. She decides to continue with the lie that Paula is going crazy, as opposed to reveal that the inspector has been in the house She's she told, keeps up the ruse exactly. in order to fool Charles Boyer. And she, she owns him. She owns Boyer. She's got one up on him. And it's my favorite scene in the whole film from any of the female characters, to be honest with you, because uh, because of the control she has in that moment. She's the only one on the on the she's the only one in the know in that scene. She knows exactly what's going on completely. And I will see you and raise you the diggy biscuits. <laughs> TJ TJ and your Miss Thwaites. Uh, the way right. re- rewind to her real quick the way she's audibly laughing and gasping at her novel is completely obnoxious but also such a way of being like please ask me what I'm reading <laughs> she is scre- she's cackling and rocking back and forth yes reading a book yes and then yeah. my friends call me what bloodthirsty Betty or something like that like what's that Bessie, Bessie. <laughs> And then she gives her two diggy biscuits. I'm like, you're going to be giving Nancy the shits all the way on this train ride. Like, holy cow. And then later she uh, she steals a strawberry from, yes. yeah. from someone in Thornton Square. <laughs> I've never been able to get them this large. I think I'll try one. And then she just turns and walks out. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, can, can, can I uh, transition to Josh's populist corner? Because it's related to like the feminism stuff that we've been we've been talking about in the female empowerment. Sure. Um, most of these are fairly jokey i guess but it is it is telling to me that most of the top reviews like reference the fact this is like ostensibly an an empowering woman kind of movie and it is interesting that like is it i'm not really sure but regardless uh here are some of the top letterbox reviews i think this is the number one one uh a three and a half star review that isn't really about anything we've been talking about but it just i made me laugh the most unrealistic part of every ingrid bergman movie is that all these men don't just immediately fall down dead at the mere sight of her <laughs> which good. Eh, points were made points were made um and then the rest of them are kind of more in the realm that i was just talking about five star review only flaw she should have killed him mm. fair hey yeah maybe she should have uh four star review for every femme fatale who suffered a slap as noir ran its courses genre it must be remembered that one of the genre's most foundational entries turned on the villainy of masculine inadequacy which is interesting identifying this as a noir which i i wasn't really thinking in those terms but we, we can come back to that put sure. a pin in that because it, it's an interesting I, it's not the first time i've heard that reference that, that this might be a film noir uh, another four-star review. The Feminist Manifesto of 1944, Miss Bergman served, all caps. <laughs> Which, 
again is 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 uh interesting given how the story actually plays out uh another four star review um asterisk adds gaslight to my list of reasons why to never trust men as example number 367 so again men suck kind of review uh another four star review in all caps and that is why you stab men exclamation point wow. so again Ooh, another that's... another person in the she should have killed him camp and then uh lastly <laughs> this one also made me laugh another four star review the way that men had 76 years to find a new hobby and they came up with nothing all caps again um alluding to the fact that uh, i guess Dudes are still doing this to women, according to this letterbox reviewer. Let's kind of let's come back to the film noir in a little bit because that is a good transition. I think talk about the the period in time which this film came out versus now. Because in 1944, this film was being released during World War II. Let's be honest; most of the audience is probably women because a lot of men are off to war, and women are finding agency actually by stepping into the. The, the workplace, right? They're having to fill roles and gaps in life in America at this time because so many, millions upon millions of men are overseas in both the Pacific and in Europe. And so women are watching this movie and they might be they might be recognizing um they might be recognizing opportunities um in their daily lives to step out from what was previously clearly patriarchal society where toxic masculinity controls. I mean, women are being victimized in the film, but she gets she she manages to get some independence, some identity back by the end of the film, some control back by the end of the film, as audiences at the time, women certainly were getting that in the forties. And it never goes back. Women enter the workplace in droves at the time, and even when the war is over, while everyone thinks about the idyllic 1950s, the, you know, the June cleavers at home and the, the pretty dresses and their pearls while they're cooking and doing the house chores, in reality, women go into the workplace and they stay there. There are millions and millions of women now working in much larger percentages than ever before. And then cut away to kind of the modern era where this, at the time, the focus is surely more on Ingrid Bergman's character and the fact that she's being victimized and she needs to... to to kind of again find her own identity again at the end, some control. But we get this this term gaslighting from the film, the the denominalization of of gaslight, right? Where it's suddenly becoming a verb and it's popularized. Even though I think it's popularized sometime in the mid twentieth century, probably not too long after the movie comes out, it comes to it comes to kind of a peak or hits a peak within the last decade, decade and a half for sure, at least in the United States. Would you like me to read the definition for Oxford languages? Sure. Give us that's right. It's been entered in Oxford's dictionary. So what is Oxford claiming the definition is? Well, the noun is just like the lamp. Right. Which uses incandescent mantle. But uh, the verb is manipulate someone using psychological methods into questioning their own sanity or powers of reasoning. <laughs> so I, I kind of alluded at the end of our last episode as we were talking about this movie that I kind of like take issue with the fact that gaslighting is kind of just becoming a, a becoming a synonym for lying. And it's not. It's a specific kind of lying. That's right. It's where you get someone to question their own sanity, which is, a, again, not just a dude who lies. <laughs> no, it's a nefarious form of lying. It's a, yes. Ill, it's a, it's a, it's a form of lying that has an, an Ill intent, a malintent behind it. And um, we're seeing that, unfortunately, repeatedly becoming a thing in modern day culture, particularly as it relates to politics. Um, you could argue that many. Yeah. You could argue that there are many elections, not just the big one, is the 2016 of it all, but many elections over the last, you know, eight years or so, 
where we've seen people either get elected or almost elected, certainly win nomination, party nominations, by doing this, pulling this kind of thing. Um, we don't need to get into the weeds on them, obviously. I think anybody listening knows what we're referring to, but um, it certainly makes this. It certainly makes this film arguably one of the most influential of all the films we've watched inadvertently. The film's not intending or setting out to do this, and most people might not have seen the film. Most people might not even be familiar with the film, and yet the film is still very impactful in its resonance all of these decades later, nearly 80 years later. Uh, to remind for a little bit, I think um, when you're talking about it's a nefarious form of lying that makes people sort of question their sanity, I think what's key to that is also key to, I, I had a similar reaction as some of the populist people where I really wanted her to stab him at the end and she doesn't. And I think what she does is better because what she does is she um, destroys him, deconstructs him with his own tools. And I think that gaslighting is a, a particularly also like masculine form of lying because it is one that's reliant upon dominance, one that's reliant upon who's authoring reality, one that's reliant upon uh, reason, which is traditionally, uh, this is, it's gendered stereotypes that women are intuitive and emotional, men are rational, right? I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's, you know, and so gaslighting comes from this. Well, you're not capable of the type of proper reasoning. Therefore, you must trust and believe me on this. Um, mm -hmm. And so what she's able to do there at the end is she's able to kind of take the tools of destruction that he has as a man um, and doesn't need really to kill him, um, which I, I, I don't know. I, kind of, I liked the ending, even though my first reaction was stab him in the throat. <laughs> I thought I thought she might have been about to yeah. when we got there, but. She did not. Yeah, which to your, I think to your point, TJ, um, because of the fact gaslighting is so closely um, connected to that type of, there has to be a power dynamic, right? There has to be some kind of inequity, uh, inequity yeah. between between the parties involved in right, the gaslighting. Right. But, but the like if, if your if your child says, you know, the cookies are gone, and you're like, who ate the cookies? And they're like, I didn't do it. It wouldn't be like you're you're gaslighting me, you little shit. Like they're just lying, <laughs> right? Correct. Um, that said, it's easier to do or easier maybe to be bought in, particularly if it's being done. We, we've seen this. It's not always that the victim isn't necessarily as intelligent or as sophisticated because we've seen gaslighting kind of broadened to be used to against large numbers of people. Entire populations um, is currently probably the, the most well-known use of it. We're seeing it used again in politics against voters. So it's being used to try and convince voters to go one way as opposed to another. And again, without going too deep into it, you're mentioning it's most common, obviously, where the man is doing the gaslighting. It's not for nothing that this term became very popular and was regularly used in both mainstream media, on social media, and just in everyday parlance during people's having conversations with one another during the 2016 election, where America first saw a man versus a woman run for president. And gaslighting became a common day term that we heard regularly and repeatedly throughout that election cycle. Um, and part of it includes, again, as you said, trying to accuse or, or, or suggest that someone else, your, your opponent or the victim's emotions 
can't be trusted. And here, let me tell you what the reality is. Let me tell you what the truth is. This is actually what's going on, even though you're obviously lying. Um, so it is interesting, though, that it all comes back to this film as being the first really pop culture uh, example of this idea being before an audience. Like, this is it. People going to see this in theaters, and they're walking out of it probably very disturbed, because this is, let's be honest, a dark movie. It's a very, very tough sit, um, having to sit there and watch Ingrid Bergman fall apart, even though you know throughout the whole film, to our point earlier, we know Gregory's up to something. We know he's lying to her, and she just can't seem to overcome that um, the, the gaslighting. Um, so it is an interesting. It's just an interesting um, kind of effect this movie has on society. TJ, I know you don't like this question, but because you haven't spoken as much on this episode, I have to ask directly: Did you like this? Yes, I did. Do um, you like this? Yeah, I thought, okay. I thought it was pleasantly. It was a pleasant surprise for me, even though it had been recommended to me. Um, I, I don't know why, but I kept it a little bit at arm's length, maybe because it was kind of Victorian and I was just like, it felt, it felt from a distance, a little costume drama E, which it definitely isn't. Um, it's much more of a, as we mentioned, kind of dark psychological thriller, perhaps bordering on noir. Um, and it's not one of my favorite films that we've watched, but I did like it and, um, I'll watch it again and I'm glad to have seen it. That was good. Yeah, I agree. I liked it. I thought it was a well-paced, and uh, I thought there was some interesting cinematography. I thought the lead performances were very good, as we talked about. I thought Nicky Burn was great. I thought uh, Charles Boyer was great. Um, it's not a little cartoonish, but I think it it suits the suits the movie and suits the tone. One one thing you said um, with the cinematography, there's a lot of good shots as she's starting to put things together, um, where she's not looking into the camera, but facing camera. And he's behind her saying or doing things. So you get like, we get her facial reaction, but it's one that she can only give because she's not looking at him. So we see her reacting and what she's reacting to within the same frame, but also knowing that she's got to keep that putting things together away from him. And I thought that was really nice shot composition and staging. I also liked um, kind of just the whole premise. And again, this is, I feel like this is a movie that they make a lot now or like not a movie they make a lot but i think that a premise like this is kind of like fodder for like trashy airport fiction now and when i say trashy i mean i mean that as a genre designation not as a comment on quality because like i think a lot of trashy fiction is really good um but like i was thinking specifically of uh a really bad movie for a couple of years ago woman and woman in the window yeah which was based on a novel that a novel that i didn't I didn't mind. I thought it was a pretty good novel. And then it was just a, one of the worst movies I've seen in a long time. Uh, basically, Woman in the Window uh, is like someone watched Gaslight in Rear Window and then wrote a novel about someone who really likes Gaslight in Rear Window. And then they tried to make that novel into a movie. But Gaslight and Rear Window already exist. So the movie is just dog shit. But uh, I don't know. For some reason, as, as, I was, as I was watching this, I was thinking about, man, this is so much better than Woman in the Window. <laughs> uh, flight Plan with Jodie Foster flight plan there yeah. you go is the girl is the girl on the train a uh, gaslighting movie i can't i, I never actually I've read or seen, saw I've that, seen that one. Seen yeah that one. but flight plan is another good one which is she does she lose a kid in that and they're trying to convince her she didn't lose a kid but she came on with no kid is what they tell her yeah ah yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah good stuff man don't gaslight jodie foster she will get to the bottom of it. <laughs> uh Catherine martin i quite i quite like this film as i said i've seen it a, a, a couple of times 
all the way through beginning to end each time. And I've seen bits and pieces of it between here, uh, between over the last 20 years or so. Um, my wife really likes this film. We watched it uh, a few years ago um, and she'd never seen it. Like you guys, she'd never seen it before, but I thought she might find it interesting and intriguing to watch. Um, she quite likes it. Um, and I, I agree. There's something about being 1944. This is not necessarily a film you expect to find um, amongst these, these pictures that are being nominated for the Academy Award. And also a film, let's be honest, that did pretty well. It made like $4.6 million at the box office, which is a good haul at the time. It wasn't a cheap film to make. It costs like almost $2 million to produce because, again, it's a period piece. There's all the costumes. They have the setting. They have to build the, the Thornton Square set. Um, George Cukor is putting quite a bit into it, but it, it is getting its money back and then some for the era. Um, which for a dark psychological thriller like this is a little surprising. And I think it's it's all due to the performances and, again, kind of the atmosphere, the, the cinematography and the production design. Uh, shout out, by the way, production designer um, Cedric Gibbons worked on this film. Cedric Gibbons was the longtime head lead production designer at MGM. He's the man responsible for designing the Academy Award itself, so Oscar. He's the guy who designed Oscar. Um, he's also one of the most... Did he win an Oscar for this? He did not. We'll, um, okay, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll talk, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the, uh, the Oscars of it all in a bit. Um, he, I take it back. I think he did. Actually, yeah, that is one of the wins. He, well, it was called Art Direction. Yes, it was Art Direction. Like, this is one of the We two, now call that production design. Right, this yeah. is one of the two wins. That is one of the two wins it did, uh, did get. Um, I apologize. You're correct. Cedric Gibbons, he, he's nominated like 39 times in his career. He won 11. Jeez. He won 11 Oscars. So he, not for nothing, he's pretty good at what he does for a living at the time. And it coupled again with cinematography and the score which isn't even nominated. You mentioned last week on our Double Indemnity episode, Josh, that there are 20 nominees for best score in a drama or comedy. This isn't one of them, despite the fact that there's a lot of heavy lifting that the music is doing throughout this movie. So it's a little shocking that it's not even nominated. And yet all of those combined for very atmospheric, somewhat spooky, um, kind of gothic horror horror movie, really, um, for the time period, that is honestly reflective of um not only a time but kind of a a reality that many women unfortunately faced at the time and still face because they're still we're still discussing toxic masculinity well into the 21st century and men trying to apply some kind of dominance or control over women in their life or not even just women in their life but other men again it's a power dynamic and so it's something we repeatedly see and this film is just kind of highlighting that at a time i'm a little surprised to see it play out so prominently the fact that this film is so popular even relative to last week's movie which we loved we all three of us agree we love double identity this movie did better or was the the reaction at the time was more positive um because unlike some of the the studio reaction and the producers and the critics at the time uh, particularly the audiences with double indemnity i mean woman's trying to a couple people your leads are trying to murder somebody this movie you get at least getting Bergman. And she's the victim. There's something approachable about her and some of the other characters in the film. You got Joseph Cotton as the hero. Um, it is just interesting that this movie uh, played as well as it did at the time, and again has long legs. Its influence is not for nothing. Uh, I'm gonna, I want to try out four other possible gaslight movies on you guys and see if these are actual gaslight movies. Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I think so too. Midsummer. 
absolutely that's close and a really a example that i really like i like that movie a lot yeah that's a pretty yeah. awesome movie um i haven't yeah. seen bo is afraid but for my money ari aster is two for two I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I was listening to a podcast about the best movies of the first half of 2023, and Bo's Afraid came up. Mm. And I, so I was thinking about Bo's Afraid for the first time since I saw it, really. And Oh, you've seen it. Yeah. I have yeah, seen it. Okay. And it's it's interesting that Ari Aster's three movies are all about uh, characters dealing with immense loss, familial loss in, in all three cases, basically. And all three movies are like, them kind of reckoning with that loss uh and it's a, a mother losing a daughter and a brother losing a sister um a daughter losing her, both her parents and her sister and then uh, a son losing his mom ostensibly and my favorite version of the journey that those characters go on in response to that immense loss is Mitsumar by like a long shot again it's I ha- really good i haven't seen Bo's afraid but if you look at hereditary and midsummer he's also gets like there's crying scenes in both of those movies when the women mm. hear about the, that is not movie crying. It is right. like what the Irish call keening, you know, just this like <laughs> insane wailing that is extremely effective. I thought um, there's like four or five crying scenes of Florence Pugh and Midsommar. Yeah. Like when she first finds out about what yeah. happened uh, on the plane on the way to Sweden um, the famous barn scene where they're like mimicking her, <laughs> which is That's amazing. A really yeah. cool scene. Uh, <laughs> it's a really cool po- scene. Possible should have been a contender in the future, um, or an unserious. Uh, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, two others. No, I think that should have been a contender. I don't know. The Truman Show. Yes. Well, I think yes, but it's not on the same. It's not quite the same dynamic, or at least they're not using the same. It's. It is. It is a form of gaslighting, right? It's. Just... I think Laura Linney and her and his best friend definitely gaslight, especially Laura Linney. Like she tells him, "You're unwell," you know, and that you need you need help, etc. Yeah. Um, when she yeah, which is just the old teen stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then lastly, and this is probably the easiest one, the remake of Invisible Man. I was just thinking of that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 This. That's also a really cool movie, man. Yeah. I like that movie a lot. That, yeah. They came out Rise of the Pandemic was starting. So yeah. kind of like it was like yeah. one of the last movies. Yeah. It was one of the last movies to hit theaters, I feel yes. like. Yep, and um, but because of that, it, it hit streaming pretty quickly. So I remember watching that on HBO early in the pandemic. And that movie kind of rips. It, it was really good. It's one of those that way exceeded my expectations. Correct. Yeah. 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 And I think I uh, enough that I don't know about you guys. It did come to mind when I was watching Gaslight this time. It, this is the first time. This was the first time I watched Gaslight since seeing that um, remake of The Invisible Man, and it definitely, definitely was creeping in my mind throughout the film. Because Elizabeth Moss is fantastic in that movie, but she, to her credit, or I guess the writing's credit, she has more agency, obviously, than the yes. character Paul. And I. I think she does end up stabbing him in that movie. I don't remember mm-hmm. her specifics, but I'm assuming she does. Correct. Yeah, there's so a lot of knives. There's a lot of knives in the Invisible Man. Yeah, that Letterboxd reviewer, um, definitely, if she hasn't already, should see, go see the Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. If you, if you like gas, movies about gaslighting, then those are four recommendations. Those are good, Rex. Uh, can we talk about the Oscars and then wrap this up? I, I agree. I think uh, we've got uh, seven nominations for this film, two wins. It's nominated for Best Picture. It's nominated for... Actor for Boyer, actress for Bergman, and supporting actress, as we mentioned earlier, for Angela Lansbury in her first film, her debut performance on screen. It's also nominated for Adapted Screenplay. It uh, wins the Oscar for Bergman. 
It's nominated and wins for art direction, as we mentioned, Cedric Gibbons and his team ended up winning for the film. It is also nominated for cinematography as a black and white film. So Joseph Rutenberg is the cinematographer. He doesn't win, um, but certainly it, it's there, he's doing some heavy lifting in this movie because there's again the atmosphere of it all, and a, literally a film entitled Gaslight. You know you're going to have to rely on Gaslight in several of the scenes, so the cinematography is not to be ignored. He's doing an awful lot of work to make this film look as good as it does. It he loses to Laura. The Otto oh, movie. Laura's so good. Laura's okay. so good. Well, it beat out it beat out both Double Indemnity and Gaslight for cinematography. So that's uh, that's high praise right there. We'll come back, but Laura's good though. <laughs> I was gonna say we'll come back okay. when we get to the recap because I do want to discuss. We'll discuss other films that could have been here. Laura's one that I was hoping to to briefly discuss once we get there because um, it is one that's a little surprising. It's not here. Given after this episode, the next three episodes. We're taking a turn. Double Indemnity and Gaslight, a little darker, a little heavier. Um, the next three, two, the next two are going to be much lighter. And then the last one, Wilson, will be a, a biopic. So we're... Otto Preminger was nominated for Best Director for Laura, but they did not get into Best Picture. Those did not line up. Yeah, one of those one of those interesting um, exceptions, right? Because if I recall, Otto Preminger is nominated for Director. I think Alfred Hitchcock's nominated. Yeah, only three of five picture director lineup. Uh, the director nominees were Going My Way, Leo McCary, uh, Billy Wilder, Double Indemnity, uh, Henry King for Wilson, and then two non-Best Picture nominees in Preminger for Laura and Hitchcock for Life, but like you just said, yeah. So yeah, we don't even know George Cougar. Yeah, no nomination for no George Cougar, which, yeah. which is, in retrospect, very surprising, because I think I think this film is doing a very, very good job at delivering on its, on its story. Um, well, to your point, I think that of these five movies, these are the two that I've heard of, Gaslight and Double Indemnity. So, like, those are the ones that have some cultural life still 80 years later. And so, if three of the five Best Picture nominees are going to end up in director, I would think that Double Indemnity and Gaslight would be two of those three, but not the case. Sorry, sorry George Cukor. Um, obviously, we'll get... It's hard to say because I don't know how much experience or how much uh, how many films you've seen in, from 1944, but um, we often ask the question of whether or not we think this we think this makes sense as a nominee or whether it holds up in 2023. So let's combine those questions. Like, how do we think this holds up? Is this a fitting reflection of 1944? Is this a good, I guess, kind of representative of its year? Do we think? I'm going to try to get to more 1944s before our recap. I kind of give myself homework each time we start a series. Um, but I think this, sometimes you, you go back and watch films from a long, long time ago and you're like, wow, this is completely lost to time. And like, this didn't age well. And who thought this was good? And there's, there's, there's movies now where (laughs) the same sort of thing is going to happen. Right. Um, I don't think this is one of them. This is one that like, I don't think it's stone cold, like, you know, top 100 material for me, but I think this is a very solid movie that um, I think plays well outside of 1944. And yeah, I agree. I I, I actually agree with both counts. It's not one that I would recommend to absolutely everybody, as is the case with something like Double Indemnity. There are very few people who I would not recommend Double Indemnity to, but like I'd recommend this to a lot of people, um, particularly people who, um, you know, like Amy Bergman or, not only like movies from the 40s, but like like movies 
from like period pieces because this is is a period piece even in 1944 is a period piece so i think that helps it age a little bit better maybe um but yeah this this is solid i, I like this a lot actually just to be clear for anybody out there if josh isn't recommending double identity to you it might mean he's not fond of you just, i think very low of yeah. your of your taste <laughs> well, and to, to quote something else josh said i think you said double indemnity is the movie that like before the 70s is like it's like a gateway movie to the past sort of thing. Like it's a feels most like a modern movie, something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I think I have a list of it, the list is Double Indemnity and Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. Those are the two movies from before 1970 that if someone hasn't seen any or very few movies from before 1970, those are two of my first recommendations because I think they they play really well in a modern audience. I I wouldn't put Gaslight above them, but I think if you expand that list, I think Gaslight would be a good movie for that list. You know. I mean, I was thinking about, I, I, again, I've not seen many movies from the 40s, um, but of the ones I've seen and the ones that I would recommend to most people, you know, this is in the top 10, you know, you know, I already mentioned Casablanca and uh, Notorious. Those are both ahead of this. But by the way, speaking of which, uh, after I finished watching this last night, uh, I just kind of threw on Casablanca just in the background of whatever I was doing. I'll tell you what, Casablanca fucking plays, man. Talk about a movie that's as good as advertised, and it's like one of the most praised and beloved movies of all time. But it's like it is as good as advertised. Holy shit, Casablanca! And we will get there. Is that I, I can't off the top of my head. I can't remember. Is that one of the last years where we get? I think ten nominees before we get all the way to two thousand nine. I'm not sure. I think it's a larger list, but we'll get there. We'll get to nineteen forty two and, and the Casablanca of it all. Um, yeah, I, I do want to just briefly point out because it will pop up again in the future. This is our first MGM film in our podcast series. Wow. And it, it, that's a studio that this is not a film that's, I, I would say, is most indicative of MGM movies by any means. Um, but the studio had 40 films nominated for Best Picture during, during its, its existence. And it had uh, nine Best Picture wins. Both of those are third all time for studios as far as most third most nominations for this category and third most wins for this category, despite the fact that MGM hasn't existed as an independent studio for decades. So just throwing this out here, this is our first MGM entry. It will be back. Um, it will be back many more times when we visit these older years for sure. Final thoughts on gaslight before we close. Ken Dussold. Uh, I, there's, it's certainly along with, I think, Double Indemnity, one of the reasons why I settled in 1944 initially, because unlike Double Indemnity, which I think is better known and is a beloved film for good reason, Gaslight, I think, among these five, is the other film that probably fewer people have seen that I really would recommend that people take a look if you're willing to kind of step outside the box, watch an older film that's a little different. Um, and goes against what everyone pictures when they think of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, this is this is that other reason, I think. This is a film that I would highly recommend to people who want something a little different from a different period of time that still holds up. Cool. TJ, anything to close, or you, you said your pieces? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Thwaites. <laughs> uh, next week... We do. We uh, are we going to go your way, Ken? We are. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna hang out with Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald, and uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go my way. That's right. Um, 
So I, I'm going. You're you're going my way it's next the, week. We're going Ken's way. It is the best. It is the best picture winner. So um, it not, beat out two the last two movies we watched, which I, both of which I liked quite a bit. So high expectations for this one that beat them. Both I was just about to say Oscars. this. Unfortunately, uh, this yeah. film has got a really, really, really high bar. There's a lot of pressure on this movie going in. It won seven. Yeah, it, it won seven Oscars. It, it, it cleaned up at the Academy Awards. So um, no pressure to going my way, or literally maybe all of the pressure on the next episode film. And spoiler alert, I don't think it's going to hold up all that well to our criticism. You, you, you've been you've been priming me this for a while. Ever since we've been talking about these movies as an aggregate, you've been kind of alluding to the fact that this one isn't very good. So well, I'm let me cl- my expectations are tempered. Well, let me let me clarify. Uh, I quite like the film. It's a charming movie. But we'll and we'll talk more in detail next week about that part of that part of me and my relationship with this movie. Uh, that said, if you had if you watched last if you listened to last week's episode and you listened to this week's episode um, next week, there will be I think quite a bit more discussion and um, <laughs> questioning of how this film how going my way does so well. But that's next week. We'll we'll come back and we'll dive into it all in the next episode. Um, for now, this finishes things up for Gaslight, gentlemen. Well, thank you for hosting, Ken, and we hope you all tune in again next week to hear about Going My Way. Hasta la vista. Bye. She's a tartar, ain't she?